0: Oh.
1: Episode twenty-one of season two. Dennis Bernstein, welcome back. Let's do it. Let's do it, Jay. What do you got? Well, we're coming to everybody live from beautiful Southern California. Although it is a little bit rainy, I know you love your traffic and weather, DB. So it's a little bit uh, raining off and on this week here, but uh, and snowing in Denver. I'm sure we'll get into that. But we are coming to you today from the Troy Grossnick Studios here in Southern California. What do you make of that?
2: Wow, just set up my chair, Jay. A current day LA King yeah let's do it
1: well look you know I love to uh talk about former Kings players and I love to educate and uh you know fans that are maybe newer to the organization and go back and deep into the archives and I also love to pay tribute to the guys that are the backbone of professional hockey that maybe have you know just had a cup of coffee and played a a very short period of time and Troy Grosnick I think is one of those guys who we're going to look back down the road from now 10 20 years and we're going to say remember Troy Grosnick you know uh I'm not sure he'll ever play another game for the LA Kings if everything goes right and everybody's healthy he's not going to uh but you know he he uh, very admirable of him to uh step in on short notice last week and to uh get a win a much needed win for the la Kings. so why not pay tribute to him today let's not wait 10 years db
2: wasn't it six and a half years between wins for Grosnick?
1: Yeah. It, it. Yeah. I think Todd had him back in the early 1800s, uh, back in San Jose and then, <laughs> and then now he's, uh, he's here in Los Angeles, but DB, I will, I will tell you in this, in the spirit of truth and honesty, there is another hook to all of this. And that is that, uh, our guest on the program today is Rick Knickel, who was a, a goaltender, actually a very similar story in, in certain aspects, um, uh, to Grosnick. we'll get into that in the second period and talk throughout it. But Knickel came in; he was the third goalie behind the more heralded uh, Kelly, Rudy, and Rob Stauber in the uh, in the ninety-two ninety-three season and uh, he came in, he, he wasn't even really signed to a contract. He was, he was with the IHL San Diego Goals. He was in the middle of winning the top award for goaltenders there, um, had the best goals against average in the league, and he was one of the best minor league goalies. But the, 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 the tie-in here, DB, is that he wore number one, Knickel did, when he was with Los Angeles, and uh, Troy Grosnick wore number one as well. So there's a little bit of a, of a numerology hook that we'll get into, but I have something else for you. I know you love the history, so I didn't want to disappoint you and just give you, uh, you know, Troy Grosnick, and, and, you know, it's a current king without some some history. So how about this, DB? Uh, Knickel was drafted in the 1979 NHL entry draft, not by the Kings, but by the Sabres. That was a very successful draft for the LA Kings. We've talked many times about drafts that haven't been successful, but the mark of a good draft historically has been if you can get two NHL players... Uh, as defined by somebody who plays a couple hundred games, then you have a pretty successful draft. Check out the Kings' 1979 draft, the same year that Knickel was drafted. They took Jay Wells in the first round. He played over 1,000 games. Uh, they took uh, Dean Hopkins. He played 223 games. They had Mark Hardy at 915 games. John Paul Kelly played 400 NHL games. And the next name is the name I was going to name the studio today. In the uh, fourth round... The uh, LA Kings took a player named John Gibson. And I knew that if I named the studio John Gibson, it would have freaked a couple of people out. It would have been better last week, actually, playing the Ducks. But here's the deal sure. on here's the deal on uh, John Gibson. Pretty, pretty interesting. And then we'll move along, DB. Um, he only played uh, a handful of games. He played uh, less than 50 games in the National Hockey League, uh, two years with the Kings, four games one year, six games the next year. And then he was traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs for a player that you probably have heard of, And that was Ian Turnbull, uh, who scored four goals in a game as a defenseman, which is pretty ridiculous. So he was part of that trade, uh, John Gibson was. So there was a John Gibson in LA. Don't tell Daryl Sutter, though.
2: (laughs) No, the world's greatest goalie, (laughs) no.
1: It, you know, no matter how many times I hear that DB, it still is funny. No matter how many times I see that clip, that was Daryl. That was prime Daryl. Uh, that series, so many little one-liners. But uh, let's and we do. We
2: were in the room for that, right?
1: Oh, John, that, that of right? course. That was the. Um, yeah. it, and this is the thing I don't think a lot of fans understand and appreciate uh, how this thing, how these things happen. And like, so when you're um, post game, normally during the regular season. Uh, they open up the locker rooms and you go in, you get to go into both locker rooms. So at the Honda center, you would go into the ducks room and you would go into the Kings room. But when you get deeper into the playoffs, because there uh, is more, there's more media in town covering the events, they need a bigger room. And so they eventually start bringing in, they, they make these makeshift conference rooms in the bowels of these arenas. And it's funny because DB, you and I, along with the other media, we walk by where they make this makeshift conference room under the concrete you know uh, uh, seating area it's it's basically a giant storage area when you walk by it for 82 games during the regular season and there's just all kinds of miscellaneous crap in there and then during the postseason at the Honda Center they bring in these like black conference room you know or event type tarps and they put like Astroturf down on the ground and they put these <laughs> tables in there and so on TV it looks like this nice conference room but I kind of chuckle and laugh when I walk by there, DB.
2: Yeah, and uh, and then you got to run back if, if you're going. It depends on when they open the room, so you have right. to run halfway around the arena to get back into to sit down and listen to Daryl. And if you're the losing guy, if the, the losing coach goes first, yes. I kind of pro, think protocols now. There's also protocols. <laughs> we used the protocols, John. I mean, usually not not these not these uh, stringent, but they are protocols. So yeah, it is it is kind of funny because it actually yeah the backdrop looks cool, but yeah it's a storage area with. <laughs> With some, about three rows of chairs and a table with a
1: curtain. Yeah, and DB, and remember that in in that particular round they open the room and the conference room. It's like the hybrid thing. So you ha- you you go into the room hoping to get a yeah. certain guy, and then the PR guy will tell you, "Oh no, sorry, Carter's not talking tonight. He's going to be at the podium." And so then you have to run down, and it's not close. Like it's it's a no, it's jaunt. around the, the building. Yeah, so then you have to run over to the other building. So anyway, or the other side of the building. So anyway, hashtag uh, media problems. I know people listening don't care. They just want the quotes, yeah. DB. They yeah, don't care, care what we have to do to get them they just want the quotes you got that right uh Dennis let's do some quick numerology I, I sort of hinted at it there for a second um number one a number that has been worn by uh more than 15 LA Kings goaltenders uh Wayne Rutledge was the first player to wear that back in 1968 wore it for a couple of seasons Jack Norris Gary Edwards Gary Simmons Mario Lasard, Ron Scott and then Rick Knickle he wore it for about a season and a half Uh, In 93 to 94, Jamie Storr immediately following him from 96 to 2003. Uh, And then Sean Burke, who actually was a goaltender with Rick Knickle uh, in in San Diego. Maybe we'll ask him about that. And then Jack Campbell more recently wore that number in uh, 2017, 18, of course, before he was eventually traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, and then Troy Krosnick, he, he brought, the, he brought the, the number out of retirement, I guess. That's probably the wrong word because it wasn't in retirement, but off of pause. And uh, he wore it in a game last week against Anaheim. And so those are, those are your goalies that wore number one. Okay. Just, to, just to bring this to some closure here, DB, any thoughts? I know it's several games ago, but any thoughts about that, uh, that Ducks series? Of course, there was the exciting game that you and I spoke about on the last podcast, 6-5. But then the, the Kings were rather dominant in the other game.
2: Yeah, well, it wasn't a warm up for the Colorado series, unfortunately. But, but John, I, you're—I want to hear your take on this. Okay, sure. this is numerology. Oh boy, what what would you think if a forward or a defenseman decided to wear
1: number one in the NHL? I wouldn't like it. You wouldn't like it. No. Okay. No, it's a it's. To be honest with you, I don't even like when goalies wear it. I don't know why. It's just not really? a. No, 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 it's not. I understand if you're a real history of hockey and I'm sure if you talk to someone like Mick Kern or somebody on, you know, Sirius XM and NHL radio, um, especially Canadians fans, people that grew up in Montreal, they would have an attachment to the number, you know, back in the day, uh, the low numbers, it was the goalies and then the defensemen and then, you know, the forwards and whatnot. And, you know, right. Yeah. Riding on a train and, you know, all that stuff. But um, no, I just, I, I don't, I don't like the number, and I think it's weird when a when when a okay. goaltender wears the number. Why? What about you? Would you would you be okay with it?
2: I, I think I would, but it would be a huge burden on that player, right? To break convention like that, so mm-hmm. you'd have to be a damn good player to wear it. So um, I don't know. I think it'd be unique. I, I don't know. It's it's something that just stirred me, like because there are numbers that are just segregated for goalies, and you, no one would. And thirty, you could maybe get away with. But one has always been a goalie, so yeah. unless, I mean, unless we're going back to 1937 in the Montreal Maroons or something like that. But the back to the Ducks series, I don't know. I, I think it's a red herring because how many goals did Tampa score in that series? Five? Mm-hmm. So it, now it's – look, you got to win. The, the the first game was entertaining. I know it wasn't entertaining <laughs> for you. The second one was a game they should play against that team every time. Yes. Because you can debate the other teams – they are clearly better than that team. That's the, the effort that should have gone out there. And I think the, the one takeaway from the series is we got a new terminology from from Todd, houseplants, which I had never heard before. So it's, uh, that's kind of cool.
1: Yes, Uh, well, (laughs) if he was referring to Matt Luff uh, when he used that term and or the line that Luff was playing on, Matt Luff was anything but a houseplant in in the following game when he decided to channel his uh, inner Boko Imama, who, of course, is his good friend. And Earl Skakel was on the program recently and talked about uh, those guys going to the... To the store there, the comedy store. Uh, he, yeah, Matt Luff, he, he ate some weedies at the hotel or something for the first game there against Colorado. Can we talk about the uh, second game against Colorado? Uh, sure, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm
2: pulling out my soapbox, John. Okay. You ready? <laughs> I'm ready. All right. Are you ready for the next 90 seconds? Okay. Everyone is so sensitive, John. I have news for, for some of the fans out there. Zegers might be better than Turcotte. Stutzler may be better than Byfield. Niels Hoaglander may be better than Kaliev. Ryan Johnson may be better than Bjornford. And I got a new one for you. Kondre Miller may be better than Rasmus Kapari. But it doesn't matter if they are. What matters is that the, the prospects that the Kings keep together as their future core grow together into a contending team. Mm-hmm. At this stage, kids are going to make mistakes like Bjornford did yesterday and get posterized by a 30-goal score. And when that happens... And people joke about it. Please stop being so serious and run to the fence of a 19-year-old player who's played 16 NHL games and tell us how great he's going to be.
1: That's well, it. well, hold on here. Cause I, I was gonna I, the other day, I almost texted you, and I said, you know, my uh, I, I said to myself, no, save it for the pod. Was your little sarcastic tweet directed at me? No. Okay. No. you, you gotta have
2: a sense on a play like that. You gotta laugh at that play. Because at some point that kid's going to be a a solid top four defenseman, mm-hmm. but he got posterized. It's okay. And then the, the, the tweet was like the people getting like offended. Oh, at the, they at were out the, of control then. Yeah, at the responses that to your tweet when you said oof. Yeah. Because yeah, it, it looked. But like so some guys like oh they have the worst brother. He's never he's playing like a midget, and then people get upset and and start saying oh no no he's going to be like. Just be with people made jokes about a play where the guy got posterized. Don't take it so seriously. Yeah. It's not like these kids are going to screw up. They're going to get poster. And guess what? It's going to happen for the next 18 months. Just wait till Byfield comes up and plays um, Connor McDavid next season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. Like just relax. Exhale. When, when I criticize or say the guy made a bad play or he looked, he looked bad. It doesn't mean he's a bum. It doesn't no. mean he's a bust. It doesn't mean he's not the future. Right. Like, just exhale. And take yes. the humor you know, in stride that, oh yeah, he got dogged, it looked bad. And then some guy said, well, we'll play up the ice. No, he got posterized, it's okay. I'm just telling you guys,
1: it's okay. I'm That's done. why I tweeted the, a little bit after that. Here's Dowdy, his rookie season. <laughs> like, can you imagine what, would, they would have all been screaming to send him back to the OHL. It was it was a very similar, if not worse play.
2: Well, you hyped up everybody, John. You know? So now everybody thinks perfection has to come, like as soon as they get here. Like, no, it
1: doesn't work like that. Like, exhale. And Dennis, though, see, I'll take exception to that. I didn't hype them up. I'm telling you the truth about these people. If people want to take that as hype, then it's hype. But I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you... The positive attributes of these guys. But if you read the scouting reports on Mayor's Manor, I will also tell you the areas they need to work on and the areas they need to improve in. Why a guy is ranked seventh instead of second or why a guy fell from fourth to number 10, et cetera. The same thing's going to happen here, Dennis, because in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be putting out the newest edition, the latest edition of the LA Kings prospect rankings. And I think some people are going to be surprised about certain guys that rose up the list, certain guys that sort of fell down the list. But you know, DB, along these lines... I wanted to share this with you. I almost sent this to you the other day, but I, again, I told myself, nope, save it for the pod. I want to read you a text message that I received from a scout. Now this is not a scout with the LA Kings, but this is a scout with, uh, I'm going to say decades. I was going to say dozens, a lot of years of experience. And, um, this is somebody who obviously follows me on Twitter uh, and, and is aware of what was going on because we'll compare notes on players and whatnot, and I value his opinion when, when talking about various players around the league or talking about even prospects and things like that. As, as you know, Dennis, I talk to a lot of scouts and try to keep in touch with what's going on. Uh, the other day during the game and all that nonsense that you're talking about, this is, <laughs> this is the text message that I received. He said, I said it the other day and I'll say it again. Kings fans are getting carried away with their comments and expectations. Hockey is a game of mistakes. Hockey is a sport where you are not your best every single shift or every single game. He used a couple expletives, and he said, he said, "They're really starting to piss me off." And I just, I laughed, Dennis, for ten minutes when I got this. Point, I laughed, and then yeah, I wrote the back. Point. And hold on, it gets better. I wrote back, yes. and I said, "Welcome to my life," because you know everybody keeps asking us lately, Dennis. How do we keep our sanity with all this nonsense on Twitter? And um, th- then a couple messages later, there was a reply that said. Last I checked, the Kings were not expected to win the Stanley Cup this season, and the Rain were not expected to win the Calder Cup list this season. For that organization, it's a year of evaluation and minutes played to measure growth. People need to watch the games, appreciate the entertainment, and shut the F up with all the negativity. <laughs> I just thought, here's a scout who has better things to do <laughs> than, yeah. than to share these opinions. But, man, that's how annoying Twitter is right now. It's even annoying people that aren't employed by the organization.
2: Yeah, I know, but but, but take the humor and stride. When, when somebody says, like, one guy tweeted to you, John, I think that the Kings don't have any good pros, defensive <laughs> prospects. You know, that, like, Don't take it seriously. Don't, like, I mean— that's it, like the sense of the, because I think there is, you know what is a Big Picture, all kings. There's a lot of stake here, right? I mean, the, the team is leveraged on their for primarily on their prospect. Sure. So when like somebody doesn't have a good game or makes a bad play, and when and when I tweet a Tim Stutler goal, it doesn't mean that Quentin Byfield sucks. Like who cares? They're in different conferences. They can both be good. They can both be good. One guy when, we're gonna find out at the end of the road anyway but it doesn't mean like I'm disparaging Quentin Byfield or, or here's the better one, John, I'm taking a shot at you. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like you're taking a shot at me because you're tuning. No, Tim Stutz is a really good player mm-hmm. like, and he's going to be good. It doesn't mean that any of these prospects aren't going to be good or they're not going to work out. It's just, it's ridiculous. I do it to see the response and it's like, it's you're right, John, it's crazy. And there's your affirmation that a guy reached out to you who got, well, you're right, way better things to do than, than talk about, criticism. He
1: has the no players. skin in the game at all. None, no skin in the game at all whatsoever. And he's agitated and he's irritated by all of this nonsense. And the part that I don't get though, Dennis, is it's not an, or it's an, and it's not an, or it's not, it's, it's like what you were saying. Like they both can be good. Go back to the 2003 yes. draft class. Everybody go back to 2003. Heralded as one of the best first rounds of all time. If not the Preach, best John huh? reach reach. Yeah. Preach. Let's go. So you look at that. That is a draft class that is full of great players, Hall of Fame players, guys that have played a thousand games. I, I, It's not an or. So if you take a player and another player ends up being good for another organization, that's OK. And I think the biggest complaint for in all of this, it's really simple. This is what it boils down to for me. People don't care about who's going to be better. In three years, people don't care if Byfield eventually leads to a Stanley Cup in five years or 10 years from now. People don't care. People only care about one thing, Dennis, instant gratification. And the fact that Byfield is not in the NHL scoring goals right now while the other guy is in Ottawa and he's scoring goals, it just has people worked up into an absolute frenzy. And the part that I can't figure out, though, is why people refuse to listen to what's being explained to them. I put out an article, Dennis, with Mark Yannetti. It's not my opinion. You're talking about the guy that right, drafted right. the player, and he's telling you yep. why the organization took Byfield over Stutzel. They're his quotes. It's right there. Read it. He'll explain to you. So for anybody who doesn't understand or wonders why, why don't you talk to the guy who make, helped make the decision, right, along with Rob Blake and, and Rutu and the other guys, but why don't you listen to what those guys had to say? We had them on the podcast. They didn't draft him for this year. Ottawa drafted a player that they wanted to put into their lineup this year. The Kings didn't draft a player to put into their lineup this year. They drafted a player with a plan in mind, and this was a long-term play. So you you could have already started being disappointed. You didn't have to wait for the season to begin. You could have started your disappointment back in October because you could have known that, that one player in Stutzel, he was going to be in the NHL and the other player wasn't. This other player in Byfield he belongs in the OHL right now from an age perspective, so... I don't. Know. It's it's just craziness, TV. It's absolute craziness. Yeah, it's not a choice. It, they can both.
2: Ex- right, well, John, a- let's go back to two thousand. What seven or eight? Drew Dowdy and Steven Stamkos. Mm. Cool. It, you know what? were worked out great for both teams? They both got cups. One took a lot longer than the other. Mm-hmm. But come on, really? And we're not even, at John. We're at the beginning of the road. Look, <laughs> it's the first hurdle. It's like both those players cleared one hurdle. Like yes. Tim's doing nice in Ottawa. The team stinks. And Quentin's getting his experience in uh, in Ontario. Right, That's where we are. We're not any further than that.
1: Let's take a break. Let's bring in Knickel Let's take a look back at the LA Kings uh, back in 92, is, 93, their the first trip ever to, to the Stanley the Cup period. final and what preceded that over uh, about a six-month period leading into that. A lot of interesting stuff. We'll talk with Canickle. We'll come back in the third period, Dennis. We'll talk all things LA Kings. Roster decisions, uh, the game getting postponed this week, and uh, their upcoming games against Vegas as well. So we'll be back after the break. Welcome back, Second Period Kings of the Podcast, and I have to tell everybody, uh, I am super excited uh, because with us today is Rick Knickle, and he is going to complete the trifecta for me, uh, the hat trick, if you will, from the 92-93 LA Kings team. We've already talked at length through the years with Kelly Rudy. We've talked at length with Rob Stauber through the years. This is the other guy who had a a big impact on what happened with the goaltending, and I'm talking about Rick Knickle. So, uh, Rick, welcome to the program.
3: Thanks for having me, John.
1: Well, I, you know, I you can thank me at the end because we're going to go down memory lane here, and I'm not sure uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna want to relive all of this stuff because uh, you were you were a traveling man you you had a suitcase and a, or a duffel bag and you were all over the place. But I want to set the scene for everybody because you know we have a lot of newer Kings fans that jumped on board and fo- started following the franchise uh, when they you know, started winning Stanley Cups and whatnot here over the last decade or so. But uh, going back to that 92-93 season, I kind of want to set the stage and then we'll get deeper into your career. So it was February of uh, 1993 Uh, The season was about half over. Wayne Gretzky had missed pretty much the first half of the season with a really serious back injury, more serious than people probably understood at the time because the media was not like it is today, you know, with Twitter and and all of this stuff where instant information is available. But Gretz had missed the first half of the season. He had only recently, a couple weeks prior to you coming on board, he had uh, rejoined the Kings. And then... There was a game in Minnesota, it was on February 17th, uh, that you had your first practice, and then the next day, because the Kings were playing back-to-back games, the next day you made your NHL debut after being in the minor leagues for a long time, and and here's the connection that I didn't tell you when we were first setting this interview up. I actually happened to be at that practice in Minnesota. This is long before I was ever, yeah, this is long before I was ever covering the team, uh, I was just a hockey fan. I knew the right people at the time. And uh, I was wow. on that particular road trip, Minnesota and Chicago. And again, because Twitter didn't exist and things like that, um, I didn't even know that you had, had been signed and that you were going to be there. So, you know, we were there. We're at practice that morning in Minnesota. And here you come with this red and black goalie gear. And everybody's yeah. like, wait yeah. a minute, who's who's this guy <laughs> in the red? Because you were wearing <laughs> your San Diego goals stuff. So yeah. Um, yeah. just... As best you can, what do you remember about that first practice, getting an opportunity to play with an NHL team in practice? And did you even know that you were going to get the start the next day?
3: No, I didn't know I was going to get the start the next day, John, because it was really such a whirlwind. And I think once I got on the ice that morning, that practice, it was really, it was surreal because I didn't know a few guys. I played against Pat Conacher and a few other guys back in junior, but that's quite a while ago, you know, and and I'm on the ice, and I over my career up to that point, I'm 32, almost turning 33. I think in February, I think it was two weeks before my birthday. But I I really realized, like you know, these NHL guys shoot the puck, you know, and as a goalie, this is the difference you see, and and it took me a little while to almost understand that this is another jump in in why you know as your career goals for goalies, it's really one of those positions that is so difficult to jump in and at a young age and now I was older I really felt like once I got in there I felt like I belonged because I really um, saw a lot of the guys that I I had known for quite a long time and and that was the older guy in the team I wasn't like I was a young guy I think I was the oldest guy when I got there (laughs) but it was really really surreal but in the back of my mind, in your gut, right, you you know, I was the best goalie in Canada when I was 18, 19 years old and junior. So you really go through your career and think that, yeah, I do belong here and now I'm here. And I never thought I'd get to this opportunity once you're 26, 27, you are a minor leaguer. Mm-hmm. And I didn't play as well until, you know, I was 28, 29, 30, 31. Maybe it was when I got out to California and San Diego, I started to the, really feeling that, liking that towards the end of your career, you know, no bus rides and, you know, more plane rides. And it felt like more we were really, you know, close to the NHL because in San Diego, which I really give them a lot of, you know, credit with Donnie Waddell and Rick Dudley helping me along, who I've known forever. I've known them both for 30 years that they really promoted me and and our team was really good. and, And I got... I got a lot of protection, but I played really well, and I think that if it never happened, you'd wonder could I have taken that game from that year to the NHL. And and I actually did, and I was pretty proud of what I did. I wish I could have played more, and just to because you know you're going to have your ups and downs, and your your good and bad. And I had a over 500 record, which is something I'm very proud of, and 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 to go to the Stanley Cup Finals with that team. With all those star players, really, and and the reason that I I, I felt you know I belonged, but I, I was really good friends with Wayne's brother, Keith, mm-hmm. and so that kind of smoothed things over. And I talked to him about you know how I actually got there, and you know knowing Barry Melrose from the year before, and there were so many different dominoes that had to fall that um, it was really crazy that it, it extended right to the Stanley Cup Finals, which is something that's still. You know, bothers you when you see the Stanley Cup, of your name's on
1: that. Let's let's sort of put some more timelines to this. I mean, you talk about your junior career. You're with Brandon Wheat Kings, one of the more legendary teams in the Western Hockey League. You finished up there though in 1980. So it was a while before uh, you really started to have more accolades. It was the 88-89 season that you were the James Norris Memorial uh, Trophy winner, you know, as the top goaltender in the IHL. So that's a good eight years later. But coming off that first time, because you won it again with San Diego, but in 89, did you, did you sort of start to think like, hey, I've, I, I've done everything I can do here in the minor leagues. Somebody's going to give me a chance.
3: Well, the first two or three years, Don, I really didn't play that well in the American League. And that really set my career back as far as confidence and, and being able to think that I could play at that level. And that's just the level below the NHL. So I got to jump another level. So I was down in the IHL when the IHL was just below the American League. And I had some good years, bad years, and went through some things. And, um, you know, then I retired in 87, 88. I just really kind of had enough. I was 27, 28, and I am not going to make it at that time. And I went home, and, and I really missed it. So I came back, and that's when I won. I uh, played in Fort Wayne, and I got, you know, my got my, you know, my adrenaline and my juices back to where something I missed, and I really felt like young again. and And that's when my career started. From there, and then I, you know, got some more uh, notice in American League, and I signed with Hartford's Foreign team. We won the championship. And then I was with um, Barry Melrose's team at Adirondack. And so I got to be, you know, a little more credibility at a higher level. And that's where the connections in this game are a lot like that. Um, I was playing the San Diego my first year, and we finished that year. Um, Sean Burke came in um, at the end of the Olympics and came in and played, and we, we got knocked out the first round. And so I saw myself playing with Sean Burke and it really made me think that I am as good as a lot of these NHL goalies that I know i played with and played against. And that's where Barry Melrose um, was in Adirondack and I had a connection through Detroit and they called me and that's where I went down there the year before that Barry got the job in LA. And that's how that connection started because I never knew Barry Melrose before this, but I was in San Diego playing, playing really well. I mean, I was, you know, 33 and four or something like that. It was just ridiculous what I was doing, but our team was really good, but I did my part and um, I got lucky um, at the time. Uh, the situation in LA, they were, they were really a 500 team and um, their goaltenders were going through slumps like we all do hot and cold up and down. And, you know, Kelly, I knew from junior, I played with, against Kelly way back and we were teenagers. So it's been a long time since I've run into him. And playing in San Diego, I knew what Los Angeles was doing because I'm a hockey person. I'm watching hockey games. And I kind of knew what was going on because of Barry being there. And I was interested to see how they we were going to do, but that was a time that I'm going to get to where I want another James North trophy. Now, um, a hot, an NHL team is coming to watch me halfway through a season when I'm 31, 32 years old, really it, it's unheard of. Yeah. But Uh, nowadays it's happened a few times and uh, I got little props from a a sportscaster up here where uh, Troy Grosnick was playing the other night and he said, yeah, this happened uh, back in the early 90s (laughs) and and the sports reporter that said it was a Maritimer, I'm from Nova Scotia and so is he and my brother knows this guy. It was really it's kind of cool to see that. I said, oh, I'm so relevant twenty eight years later. Yeah, well,
1: the story's <laughs> a, a little bit different, also, because in Grossnick it was, yeah. you know, he was he was like option. D E or F on the, uh, on the depth chart. <laughs> that was, it was by accident, yeah. you know, if you will, um, yeah. but you were on purpose. Yeah. So Barry yeah. went out and, and picked you and I'm curious about how it actually happened. Cause I was talking with Barry this morning to get some background information on, on what had happened during then. And Barry had a different slant on something he had told me previously, which was that back then he, he believed what happened was that he had called Bruce Boudreau and sort of said, Hey, I need a goaltender, uh, Rudy's slumping and Stober is as well. And you know, do you know anybody? And it was Boudreaux that recommended you and said, you have to take a look at this Rick Knickle. He's like, you know, one of the best goalies in the minor leagues. And just for whatever reason, he's never had an opportunity. That's what Barry had told me a couple years ago. And today he said, you know, I also think that I might've had Knickle at some point, but yet, when you look at, uh, you know, when you look you up on DB, I don't see the connection. So
3: what was... I never you- played in Adirondack. I, I went there to the play at the playoffs, right? So my team okay. ended in San Diego. So they called me, Detroit. Nick Polano was their pro scout. I, he was my first coach. And they needed a backup. Uh, they had a chance to win the championship. Barry was coaching. Right. I didn't know Barry. Okay. And so Nick Polano phoned me and said, hey, can you come down and be the third goalie? That's when I met
1: Barry. Got it. But
3: Barry, when he got to L.A., He probably forgot that I never played, but I was with them as a third goalie.
1: (laughs) That's why. Okay, that makes sense.
3: (laughs) Okay, so yeah. So then I know Gabby, right? I've known Gabby forever. And when I read that, I went, "Really, Gabby did that? That's that's great." You know, I, I didn't know that. I I just read that not very, but you know, long ago. John, it was really interesting that I heard that that Barry went out, or he came and said to me when he saw me play in the All Star game before they signed me. He says, "Oh, I maybe it should have played you last year in in the finals, <laughs> but we we ended up winning because whatever." And I'm better, you know. Like I said, those things happen. And we won seven games, and some games you play good and bad. And Barry was at that crossroads who they throw me in there, right? Yeah. Because I had experience; I had won championships before, and I was practicing and I was ready. And I heard that they might play me, so I was like, "All right, I'd like to play that game." But <laughs> yeah, Barry was really a guy that um, obviously. You know, believed in me in a short period of time when I got there that obviously I have to do what I have to do and you know play well enough that he's gonna you know say hey I gotta play the best goalie hopefully you know three of them can push each other to play
1: good yeah. And let me tell you a couple of things that, that Barry also shared during our conversation. It was that, you know, he was known for for motivating players and find find a ways finding ways to to get guys motivated. But it wasn't about trying to necessarily motivate Rudy or Stauber. They were both struggling, uh, which they've they've admitted and talked about uh, in interviews that I've done with them as well. Uh, but everybody seemed to sort of rally around you, according to what you. Uh, To what Barry was saying, he said, look, before we brought Knickle in, I went to the veterans on the team, whether it was Gretz or some of the other guys, and I explained to them, you know, that I was going to bring Knickle in and and who he was and, and, and what the purpose of it was and that everybody was pretty much on board with it. And he said that what he found so interesting is that many of the vets, they knew somebody that had played with you just because you had been so well traveled yeah. and, you know, hockey circles are small. Like people were like, Oh yeah, we know who that guy is or they quickly yeah, they quickly exactly. they quickly found out. So he said that you were really accepted within the group he felt very, very quickly, much more so than a normal player who's, you know, acquired mid season, if you will.
3: Yeah, and that was so on board like that it was when I got in the you know, I got on the plane, I was like, I knew Pat Carnegie, I knew that guy, and I knew a lot of guys that played with it. When you play a lot of years, you know, at that time I played 13 years. So, yeah. yeah, that's that's interesting because here's a real sidebar of this. I played with a goalie named Steve Penny in Fort Wayne. Mm. And he went up to Montreal. He jumped American League, went up to the NHL. Similar situation. Their goalies weren't playing very good or hurt. And they tried this guy that led really third or fourth in their system. And they were Larry Robinson all the vets aside, he was out of the room and they said listen we have to rally around this guy and that way but you know he wasn't experienced like i do he was only like a four-year American League or ihl um player uh, but he uh he wasn't you know what they were wondering about is this guy going to be able to carry the load so we need to do a lot of shot blocking and really play good defense so that's interesting to hear that because you know i I just go there and, and I'm, you know, trying to fit in, and I get a chance to play my my second day that I'm there, and um, I get B seven three, but probably the best seven goal game I ever had in my life. You know, I really thought that I belonged, and it was crazy that, you know, the timing of a lot of things in this business. And at the time, I got the call to come to the NHL later in my career, but I had food poisoning about a week or ten days before, and I still had not recovered. Hmm. And, uh, I kind of felt it in the first game, but even so, I, I was, I was proud of what I did and I kind of built on that and I felt like I belonged and I could play in the league.
1: Well, just so that people have an understanding of how the Smythe division worked back then, the uh, the game in Minnesota that I mentioned where you practiced uh, in, in the morning skate, the Kings won that game 10-5, to and then they ended up losing yeah. the next night, which was the 7-2 to game, uh, 46 yeah. shots on goal that night. And I was talking with Dave Taylor about you, and uh, he he laughed about that and said that whenever he – because you've been doing scouting, obviously, for a long time. Yeah. He's, and Dave said yeah. that whenever you guys run into each other, he loves to tease you about the fact that uh, for your NHL debut, they basically allowed 50 shots on goal
3: yeah we just let him say here let's we'll see what <laughs> he can do <laughs> and dave's one of my better friends in the scouting world right yeah he's been in a long time and so have i and you know he was the older guys i name mean, everybody in that team was so good to me and that's what i understood the, the story itself but i have to be able to you know handle it and be able to you know we were in a crunch time to mm-hmm. try to you know make the playoffs and and I've been through the wars before. Junior through the American League, I've won five championships, and you know, but to get to play with you know NHL guys that you know you watch for a long time in your in your career, but now you're there, and um, you know, the first game or so after that, I felt you know really good. I mean, after the second game, obviously, I got first start in Tampa Bay, and we won. So I mean, now I get to get a lot of shots again, but now I'm ready to. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not just feeling the league out. I've now played a game, which was – I didn't really look at it as how many goals I let in. If it was 22, 23 shots, I would have thought, yeah, that's a little different. But I was i was under siege a lot, and I made a lot of good saves, which was really, you know, get your confidence going.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, we want to talk a lot about your career, but before we move on, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about Tomas Sandstrom uh, I have long argued that he is the the most underappreciated uh, and underrated member of the L.A. Kings in their 50-plus year history. You were there. he You saw him in games, but you practiced against him as well. Can you just talk about Tomas Sandstrom for a few minutes? And and do you agree, at least, with uh, with my assessment of, of his skills and ability?
3: Yeah, it's funny. Some guys, I think he's one of those guys that could have played probably in a lot of different eras. You can't say that to a lot of guys, mm-hmm. you know, big, rangy, you know, can score, can compete. hard to play against. You know, he's, he's a Swede, but back then I don't think anybody thought of him as being a softer Swede European type of player, which a lot of stigma was back then.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, but not with him. He, he was one of the better guys on the team for me as a, you know, like friendship type of thing where we played cards and I was involved in some of the things where you get to know guys a little bit better. A really good guy. And I ran into him over a European, uh, European scouting trip many years ago, and uh, that's the last time I saw him. But he was a really good player, uh, really valuable for our team, for Gretz as well, because they really missed each other when they were hurt. Mm-hmm. But when mm-hmm. they were together, they were really good. And You need that going into, if you make the playoffs, to have combinations of lines, one or two guys going on each line and, and, and producing. But, yeah, he was, uh, you know, he was a big guy that could skate and handle pucks and do a lot of things in traffic and yeah, smart player Played against, you know, practice against these guys, you know, like you know, getting to practice against Luke time you know, these younger guys, Rob Blake and Jitnick and guys like that. It, uh, it tested all my abilities, you know, even though, you know, you think, uh, how good you are because you've only been at certain levels in your career, but you had know, played against them with some NHL guys that were, um, you know, younger guys even that have gone on to play in the NHL, like Ray, you know, Ray Whitney or uh, uh, Miroslav Chatan or uh, Peter Secor, guys like that.
1: Yes, love the Razor. Great guy. Uh, you mentioned yeah. card playing there. We had Warren Reichel on the program recently. And um, when I asked Reichel about yeah. you, he's, his first comment was that you're a bad card player.
3: No, 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 no. <laughs> I, he, he still owes me money. <laughs> Yeah, this is, absurd. this is a 28-year-old thing that he still owes me money from, you know, your plane, playing, and all of a sudden, I get sent down. <laughs> it wasn't a lot of money, but yeah, we kid each other about stuff like that. It's like, well, I'll have to talk to him about that. You know, <laughs> that bad card playing, yeah. We yeah. had a lot of fun. Um, and that's the thing. When you when you have a lot of fun with uh, good teams, mm-hmm. you usually win. You usually win.
1: Now you mentioned Rick Dudley a moment ago and uh, I was speaking with Mark Hardy about you and uh, he would he was talking about in 94-95 when you guys were with the Detroit Vipers. this is during the lockout, I believe and Rick Dudley who yeah. was who was uh, instrumental in getting really you and Harpo to, uh, to Detroit for that. Um, but what Harpo wanted me to mention was uh, in that season uh, during the lockout, Messier had put together that all-star team. Um, and that team was loaded, by the way, you had Blake and McGinnis and, and Brett Hall, uh, a whole bunch yeah. of guys on that team. And uh, he was talking about a game where this 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 all star team would travel around and play different people. And when they came in to play Detroit, it might have even been the first game of their their tour um, that they yeah. put they put 68 or 70 shots on goal on you. You ended up winning the game four three and at one point, they had a five-on-three power play, and Harpo was talking a lot about who they had out there for that five-on-three power play uh, when they had Blake out there with McGinnis, and, and you had uh, you know, some of the names I mentioned earlier, Messier and Hall and everything, and they were just firing away at you. Rick Tockett might have even been uh, planted in front of the net, but do you remember? I'm sure you remember that, 68 or 70 wow. shots on goal. That's ridiculous. Well... Wow.
3: Well, I think Harpo, as we get older, right, the numbers get a little higher. (laughs) Was it forty? It It was over forty. It was over forty, right? It was not sixty-eight. Okay, I've had one of those in junior, but not in uh, yeah. But it was it was one of my highlights of my career. Absolutely one of the highlights of my career. You know, these guys were a little rusty, but uh, as the game went on after the first period, their their eagles gotten you know their adrenaline all that it starts to come out, and we started to see a little bit more. Bumping from them, or it really was a game for them to get back into their rhythm because they are going to go to Europe and play right. a six game series against the national team of Finland and Sweden. Okay, this is how good a team we had. I mean, we played well that year. We had a lot of ex NHL guys. We had some good young prospects that are, went on to play in the NHL on that team. Now, Rick Dudley always knows how to recruit. You know, he knows how to get people into independent teams that aren't affiliated. We weren't affiliated with an NHL team. Mm-hmm. And so when they went to Finland, the Sweden, they won all six games. We're the only team that beat them, That's and no, we played no. with them. Even though I played probably one of the best games of my career, besides a few few games in NHL, but yeah, it was. Um, they didn't think. They didn't have the Detroit guys. They would have probably beat us, I think, for sure. They they didn't have either winner Coffee or somebody else. They weren't allowed to play because it was in Detroit, and they just felt the ownership and it was just too much of a conflict. Sure, but even so, sure. I mean. We've had a shootout in between periods, between the second and third period, just to show the fans, you know, NHL, too, about the shootout, what we do in the NHL. Hmm. So I I had to face um, Steve Larmer, Brett Hull, uh, Russ Cortino, Mark Messier, and Gretz was the last one.
1: Wow. Good times. So
3: I I stopped three out of the five
1: not bad uh no Mel- not bad <laughs> melrose had said uh in describing the three goaltenders there he said uh rudy was the guy who would outcompete you stauber was the guy who was technical and knickle was the guy that uh, nothing phased him he said it didn't matter what was going on you just went out there and and went about your business whether it was practice or a game would that be a fair description of the three of you guys
3: Oh, yeah, that's pretty good, Barry. Wow, pretty observant for a coach, right? To see three goalies that really, yeah, back then. But Barry was a player, and he was a defenseman, you know, so there was a relationship always with goalies. It would have to be, right? Mm-hmm. It's just the way mm-hmm. you have to communicate with each other. But, yeah, I mean, Kelly is that, right? He's He was a big competitor, and that's what I like to be, you know, and I, I didn't have enough of that in my early on. So I was more natural when I was a young kid where, you know, I don't know Kelly's minor hockey career, but. Um, you know, from junior on and, and to get to the NHL at 22 23. And his was more technical, more, you know, goalie coach driven, probably, which he became. Um, and me, yeah, I think that was it for me. That's why I think I lasted so long. A lot of things don't bother me. I'm confident in my abilities. You know, at times maybe, you know, you have injuries over career too. And when I was early on, I had some key injuries that were really changed the way I had to play in the hip area. Um, So it really is kind of things that you, you know, you evolve as a goalie and um, you have to play well. And if you don't play well enough at a young age and people think that you give you a chance and then you get there and you stay. I think that if you can get there, uh, I've seen a lot of goalies that I've played with and gone by and then played in NHL. And I go, there's not much difference in the position. Mm -hmm. I think other people have said that too.
1: Stauber referred to you as a junkyard dog and he wanted me to make sure that I told you that's a positive statement in his mind so he said that you (laughs) loved the position you loved the game and he said that you had a a very high hockey IQ which is not something that he always associates with a goaltender per se Um, and he just said that you he thinks that's one of the reasons why that you were so good and played for such a long time is because of your high hockey IQ.
3: That's that's pretty good. Stabi was the same, you know, and this is why he became a coach, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and it goes hand in hand. I think all goalies are observant and they're analyzing. Kelly was an analyst, so I became a scout, you know, mm-hmm. and I drafted a lot of players. Why? Because I know how to identify players and what goes on in this game. We have to as goalies, and uh, that, that's nice of Stabi to say that. But I, I haven't seen Robin in a long, long time, and uh, it's interesting how you get the perspective of. You know, the 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 backside of, you know, 20-some years of when you played with someone very briefly. You know, I played against Dobby in the minors a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: but uh, Kelly, I played junior and not none, nothing in the minors, and then got to play with him in the NHL.
1: Now, here's an interesting trivia note. I don't know if you know this or not, but this, is a, this would be a big deal here in uh, Southern California, at least. You were the very first L.A. Kings goaltender to face the Anaheim Ducks. They were an expansion team, and in the first Kings-Ducks mm-hmm. game, you picked up, well, yeah. I mean, do, do you remember the game?
3: Yeah, I think it was a 2-1 or 3-2. It was a low-scoring yep. game, I think. 3-2, Th- well, December
1: sure. 2nd, 1993. Three-two. Yep, 3-2 game. You picked up the win. So not only were you the yeah. first Kings goaltender to ever face their cost, uh, crosstown rival, you were also the first Kings goalie to pick up a win against back when and they were the, the Mighty Ducks.
3: Yeah, and I was fine with them that year after the Stanley Cup. They were another team. There was two teams, actually, the first time in my career that were you know, offer me contracts at the same time. Really? I had to make a decision. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, a, it was really tough, but you know, because I had a connection on the one side with Anaheim, with their farm team in San Diego and Donnie Waddell was down there. So that was comfortable for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: If I was the third guy going up and down, that's no problem. Or if I win the second job, who knows? His mm-hmm. an expansive team. And I was told I was going to get the job right by November. They're going to trade somebody. and You'd be the guy. Cause Al Sims was the assistant coach. And I played with Al way back in Fort Wayne. We were really good friends, and he realized, okay, you now have played in NHL, and now you know. And I, I felt so loyal to the LA Kings, so the only team that ever gave me a chance and signed me, and and did what they did for me that I signed back with LA. Not necessarily for that, but I felt comfortable. And felt like, okay, it's another competition. The three of us to see, you know, who's going to win out here, what's going to happen, you know. And uh, I just, I just felt that I, I. I I, I was going to sign with Anaheim, and I decided not to. Uh,
1: so it sounds it. like you were very conflicted at the time.
3: Oh, yeah, very much so, because I had a, uh, another assistant coach that was pushing for them to, you know, sign me that, you know, I could have been maybe their number one guy. Who knows, hmm. G. E. Mm-hmm. Bear was. I think it's Guy Bear, Sh- 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 and um, Ron Tugnut. And they said they were going to trade Tugnut by October, November. And in the business of hockey, do you ever believe someone they say they're going to trade someone or do something? And you really don't with 50-50, right? Sure. (laughs) Guess what? They actually did. (laughs) First time I went, wow, (laughs) it was believable. I was like, darn it. And it didn't bother me. Well, it did because that year I was up and down with LA. It was Hmm. a little transition for LA, you know, with Mike Barry or some one guy. Like or anything. There was more transition there was not the same as the year before.
1: No, it wasn't the same. The Kings went from the Stanley Cup final in 92-93 in to uh, not making the playoffs the following year. So it was uh, it was tough. Yeah. And then soon yeah. Gretz was traded a few years later and the, the dismantling yeah. of the team began. But um, hey, before we wrap up here today, I just want to go back to your draft year. I'm always fascinated talking to guys about yeah. what the draft was like back then because today it's such a big production. But you were drafted in 1979. Uh, I'm just curious... What do you remember about that process it was Buffalo that selected you how did you find out you know the, the, just the whole story yeah. there
3: Oh it's really interesting there was nothing like that so we went on the radio there's what three or four of us we had a stacked team right we had Brian Prop we had four first rounders that year so these guys were a big publicity in Brandon so they went to the radio station they brought me there with them too you know I was going to get drafted most likely and so they got their drafts, all of a sudden they got taken, all that. So I'm going through the second round, third round. These guys are already gone home. So I go, okay, I'm leaving. Okay, the radio, I'm not going to sit here forever <laughs> waiting to get drafted. So I get into the car and I turn the radio on and it said another week King got drafted. Right. And I didn't hear who it was. They said Buffalo, didn't say who the name was, didn't say me, right?
0: Right. Until the right. end
3: of it. And um, yeah, that's how I got, uh, that's how I knew. Nothing else. Uh, Roger Nielsen. Who worked for Buffalo at that time? He was an uh, ex goalie back in the day. <clears throat> so he had phoned my dad in Nova Scotia and said, okay, here's his number in Brandon, give him a call there. He Say, hey, we just drafted you. So I got the call. I didn't sound like Roger Nielsen right off the hop. And I'm thinking one of my teammates is pulling a little prank. <laughs> you know, it's really good. And I'm like, yeah, I got drafted by Buffalo yesterday. Yeah, that's, nice. that's great. Yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye. So my dad phones me 10 minutes later. Hey, did Roger get a hold of you? I said, oh, that was Roger. <laughs> and I didn't say anything really bad. I was sure. just really kind of like, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I'm expected. I should have got drafted. He might have taken that as, oh, you're mad that you should have got drafted higher. Right. Which, I mean, I had a bad Memorial Cup, but I mean, I led the country. I was one of the top boys. <laughs> so, but anyway, it was really interesting now because I'm in the process, when I was a scout, how we work it now and our day. Mm-hmm. And back then it was no publicity, no, not knowing. I didn't have an agent at the time. Um, I got one after, you know, those things are, it's interesting that year, our team was, uh, we had 12 guys drafted that year I was team.
1: Well, the Kings was, uh, the Kings had a a nice connection to that 1979 draft, not only with you, but eight picks after you, Tim Waters was selected. He eventually ended up in L.A. Jay Wells, Mark Hardy, Pat Conacher, all from that group. So, yeah, uh, yeah, a, yeah. a, a really a good of,
3: a lot of a lot of grinders, eh? All the guys that were playing <laughs> a lot of years, a lot of years, right? And all all four of those guys were, you know, they all had their special skills. And I've known Pat Conacher a long, long time. Played against him junior and. That's one of the guys that I kind of gravitated to when I first got there because he was my age, and like I said, besides with Kelly, he was good. Um, but as, as we know, with goaltending, sometimes it can, um, as the season goes on, right? Everybody's got to be their own their own guy. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's more difficult, and especially with three goalies, it, it's there's only two nets. Yeah, well, that, that's tough.
1: Nick, we certainly appreciate having you on today. It's been uh, outstanding. I had a lot of fun talking with uh, a lot of your former teammates about you too, and gathering up some information. And uh, look, we're going to have to have you back on the program later in the season because I want to talk all about scouting, which is a big deal on Mayor's Manor. And uh, I know you've been doing that for a long, long time. So uh, can we can we book you back again? And we can we talk about your your post playing day career?
3: Absolutely. We don't need to talk about the the old guys playing back in the, <laughs> the early nineties, right? But yeah, it was really nice to you talking about a lot of those guys, That that's a special time of my career, even though it was a long career. But those guys were really, really good guys to play with and to do what we did. It's too bad we didn't win the Stanley Cup. That would have been real really special.
1: Outstanding conversation. Appreciate your time. There you go. Rick Knickel from awesome, the LA God. Kings. We'll be back after the break to talk more about that. Welcome back to the third period of Kings of the Podcast with DB and the mayor. Welcome back, third period. And boy, that was outstanding, DB. Always good catching up with former LA Kings, giving them an opportunity to uh, tell some of the stories. You know, I love the stories, and I don't want the stories to be lost to hear about all that stuff that went down, uh, you know, many decades ago at this point.
2: Yes, fans, there are teams before 2012 in Los Angeles and and Mayor pulled another guy out of the archives to uh, sit down and talk with.
1: Uh, Dennis, you're on fire today. Yes, there are a lot of players prior to 2012, everybody. Um, I know you're all very familiar with Tomas Sandstrom because I uh, mentioned him a lot. And uh, Eric Belanger came on the program recently. We talked, talked with him. He was uh, a big a big popular player uh, right at, right when the Kings moved into downtown at Staples Center but there was even a team that played before Staples Center back in Inglewood at the Forum so we try to bring those guys on and, uh, and talk to them as well DB before we move along any further uh, we do want to give a quick shout out to our friends over at Manscaped we appreciate all of their support for the program and is there anything better than the fresh mowed grass at the ballpark on opening day of course we're talking about uh, spring training which is happening right now in the upcoming opening of Major League Baseball but what about uh, yourself there's nothing better with being freshly groomed and our sponsors at Manscaped, the global leaders in below the waist grooming. They're here to help you. Is there anything better than the fresh mowed grass at the ballpark on opening day? Of course, we're talking about spring training, which is uh, going on right now and Major League Baseball season is right around the corner. And how about freshly grooming yourself? Our sponsors over at Manscaped, the global leaders in below the waist grooming, they're here to help you. Uh, get ready for a brand new game that's about to start whatever you're up to. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide, so join the movement. You can get 20% off and free shipping with the code K-O-T-P-N-E-W. That's K-O-T-P-N-E-W. DB, we had Earl Skakel on the program recently, one of our guests, unprovoked, telling us that he uses Manscaped, so I use it, you use it, our guests even use it, so if you're listening and you uh, have not yet taken advantage of this, you should. Uh, Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. They have... uh, their engineers over there spent nearly two years perfecting the greatest trimmer ever created, the Lawnmower 3.0. And because of the ceramic blade and the advanced skin safe technology, uh, snags will be reduced. You'll get a closer shave. It also is the best hygiene tool for the modern man. So it hits the sweet spot in every way. Perfect Package 3.0 also comes with the Crop Preserver and the Crop Reviver. So if you think it's time to keep fresh and clean, check this out. They also have um, the Manscaped Shed Travel Bag, which is a little uh, kit to keep all of your goodies stored comfortably. And speaking of comfort, Manscaped also has the anti-chafing boxer briefs that are included, and uh, it'll bring your boxer game to the next level. So if you want to be the ultimate utility man, nice baseball reference there, Manscaped is like the Mike Trout of all. Trends. I don't know if I'm going to go with Mike Trout. Let's let's change their copy on the fly here, DB. Uh, no editing necessary. Manscaped is like the Mookie bets of uh, of Trimmers. What do you think of that?
2: Well, Jay, you know, it's springtime and eventually we're going to be uh, leaving our homes. So guys out there, you, you got if you're going to try to attract, you, you got to be grooming right now. This is the time. To, John, this is like spring training, right? Because once the uh, vaccine gets into full effect here throughout uh, uh, California and Southern California, you're going to have to go out there and uh, present yourself. So right now is when you should avail yourself of the Manscaped products.
1: All right. So you heard it there from DB. This is spring training for uh, Manly Grooming. So get it done. Use our code KOTPNEW, get 20% off and free shipping uh, with KOTPNEW at manscaped.com. That way they know that you uh, came over there because of the support that they have for the program. So Manscaped.com, K-O-T-P-N-E-W, that's the code, 20% off and free shipping. Getting back to the program, Dennis, the L.A. Kings, they were snowed in. Uh, It was, you know, they had a rough go in uh, Colorado. They probably wished they could have gotten out of town as quick as possible after those two games, and uh, unfortunately, they had to stay the night, and uh, the game ended up being postponed. Tweeted about that late last night. Many people were probably asleep and didn't hear the news until this morning, but uh, the game, Monday night, postponed. And from what I understand, Dennis, it's probably going to be made up at the end of the season. So probably not until May.
2: Yeah, didn't you mention that the possibility of maybe doing a, a double header because there's different protocols for the NBA and HR really wouldn't happen on like, if the Kings wanted to play on a Tuesday afternoon to try to make that up?
1: Yeah. When I heard that the game was first going to be postponed, uh, my initial reaction was, okay, well, hold on. You know, when, when is the team going to be in town and what's the upcoming schedule and how can they do it uh, if they wanted to try to get it done right away and looking over the schedule at Staples center um, the only day that they really could have done it without moving other games. And I mean, other Kings games um, or even the other teams uh, would have been Tuesday afternoon because, They uh, although both teams were off on Thursday, they couldn't play the game on Thursday because there were already a hockey game scheduled on Friday and Saturday and you couldn't play three or in that case it would be four in a row because you would be playing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and that wouldn't work. So you could play Tuesday, Wednesday, but Tuesday evening the Lakers had a game so it would have been Tuesday afternoon. And then after thinking about it for a couple of minutes, it was like, well, wait a minute. Are they even doing those? Because it's just, it's like normal. We don't we don't think much about there being a hockey game and a basketball game on the same day at Staples Center. They do it all the time, normally. Right. Then I flipped yeah. through the calendar real quick and I said, well, hold on, wait a minute. They're, they don't have one scheduled this year. Uh, and then uh, Spike Kaufman, our, our, our good buddy, he flipped around a bunch of calendars for the other arenas that have two teams and we couldn't find one, uh, you know, one of those yeah. events all around uh, the NBA and the NHL. So the the only thing that would come close to that is that the Lakers and Clippers do play on the same day at Staples center. So an afternoon and an evening game twice this season, but uh, I, I imagine but you because you don't have of, to flip. Yeah. You don't have to flip the,
2: the building. Right. And, and you don't, you don't, I don't think they could have that many personnel in the building to turn it over while the, the, they're finishing an NBA game. Yeah. It would be too much people in the building. Yeah. To erect the, um, the boards and the, the glass and everything.
1: Yeah. So Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon was out. And then about a half an hour after that, I received word that uh, the game is probably going to be played in a uh, rescheduled uh, to be played at the, in, in may uh, towards the end of the season. So there you go. We'll wait for the official word from the national hockey league. I'm sure they'll put a memo out soon enough about when that game is, but uh, okay. So that one's behind them. And now it's time to uh, start to look forward The Kings. will be back on the ice on Wednesday night.
2: Yeah, look, John. This is these three games. You got you can't go over three, because uh, then you're you're looking at um, you know fifth, sixth, and seventh. And th- these are, and I've said it before. I mean, but these coming off the Colorado games, you you got to get some points out of this home stand. It's going to be difficult. St. Louis is not going to be easy, and Vegas really you know dominate them the the other two games in Vegas. So th- this is a this is a. Maybe a tipping point for the season. Like, do you continue to chase that four seed, um, or do you just kind of reorganize and think what the best is for the organization from you know Sunday on?
1: Well, I do think they're going to continue to chase the four seed. Uh, here, here's some interesting stuff to think about, though. We came into the season and talked a lot about the series. Uh, against the Minnesota Wild, and that being the sort of eight games that would help define the season. But the way things have played out a little bit, the way that Minnesota has manhandled them this year, uh, they are five and two against the LA Kings. Look at the other side of it, though. The LA Kings against the uh, St. Louis Blues are four one and one. So that game being made up at the end of the year actually could have huge ramifications if things continue on the path that they are in terms of perhaps that's going to help decide whether the Kings end up getting into the postseason or not. This game on Wednesday obviously is an important one because St. Louis is one of those teams that they are potentially trying to chase down to get that fourth spot. But once you get beyond the... The St. Louis game. So now that there's only one game in this particular series, TB, four of the next six games are against Vegas. So they have two at home, then they get the two against San Jose, which theoretically the Kings should be able to get healthy against that team, and then they get Vegas again. So four of the next six after uh, the Wednesday night game end up being against Vegas, and so that can be, to your point, that can potentially be a little bit hurtful to uh, to their place in the standings.
2: All right, Jay. So not that I want to ever start a controversy. But based on the way Cal played in Colorado, what's the rotation for you down the stretch in net?
1: Well, I, I still, I've said, you know, at the beginning of the season, I said all along that I thought that it was going to be a little bit more than just 50-50. Todd's tried to play at 50-50, but at times Cal has played more. Now you're going to be dealing with a situation though where Quickie's coming back from an injury and so you're not going to just throw him into the deep end. Um, Cal has had the better numbers all year long and in these more important games, Cal is going to need to, to play, if, especially in the four four games in six nights, or not six nights, but four of six games being against Vegas in a stretch where you're going to need points you're going to need to play cal peterson but 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 dennis the schedule is going to come into play because they have some back-to-backs and not only that right. coming up right away they have that weird back-to-back where they're playing back-to-back games in different cities which is not yep. really normal this year most of the back-to-backs this year are in the same city but they're going to have a home game and then they're going to have to fly and then they're going to play in a different city. So although they're not flying far uh, here in the next couple of weeks, there's like, you know, 45 minute to an hour plane rides between Vegas and San Jose, but they are going to have that back-to-back setup in two different cities. So you have that at play, which normally means you're going to split the goalies.
2: Okay. Now we're going to talk some blasphemy, John. Okay. So John Quick comes back, plays decent, he's healthy. And on April 10th, Carolina calls. Mm-hmm. We're interested in
1: John Quick.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: What do you do?
1: I I do honestly believe that Quick will be available at the trade deadline, but the price has to be right. They're not going to sell Quick off just for the sake of selling him off. The last thing they need is a fourth round pick right now. I mean, they'll they'll you know they would take a fourth round pick in another trade because you never have enough draft capital. But you're not trading somebody of Jonathan Quick's stature in in a meaningless deal. It's disrespectful to the player. So. Quick is not going to need the space, John, right? They don't need to to rid themselves of his cap it. Right. Quick is not going to get you a first round draft pick. So it's a very delicate situation. If you're going to trade him, A, it has to be to a contending team, which is good because those are probably the only teams that are calling to make a mid-year deal, right? They want to get a goaltender that they think is going to help put them over the hump to try to go after a cup. I've said many times on this program, Dennis, I do believe that Jonathan Quick has another cup run in him, uh, whether it's in Los Angeles or somewhere else. Uh, He's just—he's a big game goalie. He's one of those guys that gets up in a series, and uh, I think he has it in him. So it's a delicate situation, like I said, because you need to get him to a winning team, you need to get them into the right situation, and the return needs to be such that it's respectful. Okay, and then the other complexity of all of this is the. Uh, we talked about this about a month ago, I think, right after Hextall uh, took the job in Pittsburgh. If they make a deal for Quick, they have to do one of two other things with the expansion draft coming. They either need to right. get another goaltender in return, so that they right. can make that goalie available, because Quick is the goaltender that meets the experience requirement that would be that would be exposed. Sure. Or they would have to sign Troy Grosnick to an extension because right now he's only signed through the end of the year. But if they give him another extension for one more year, and that's assuming he would even agree to it, right? But if you give him an extension for one more year, then you can make him, I believe, available in the draft. So it, there's a, there are a lot of layers to, uh, to a Jonathan Quick trade right now that maybe didn't exist two or three years ago. Um, I think that's where it's at. I think, I, think, uh, I think he's available in the right deal. Right.
2: Well, I'll tell you this, John. If I'm Troy Grosnick and I played one NHL game and I'm offered an extension, (laughs) I'm running to the
1: desk to sign it. Sure, I'll bring two pens with me. Okay, (laughs) have pen will travel. Right? Um, It's just it's going to be difficult, DB. It's going to be it's going to be one of those things where if he is moved, um, there there's going to be a segment of the fan base that no matter how you logically try to explain it to them they're not going to hear it. They're not going to want to hear it. They're not going to want to understand it. They're not going to listen long enough to understand it. And it's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, More difficult than anybody else that has left. You know, if you sort of rank those players, DB, into into like sort of tiers, right? You know, Jake Muzzin left. A lot of people were pissed. Alec Martinez left. (laughs) Even though Muzzin was a top-pairing defenseman and Martinez was more of a second or third-pairing defenseman, more people, more fans were upset when Alec Martinez left. Then you lose a Foley. you lose a Tanner Pearson, right? You know, different levels of emotions. When you deal with Jonathan Quick, yeah. that's, that's top of the food chain emotion right there, DB. That's, that's you know, there are four guys that are going to have their numbers retired when all is said and done. Uh, we've right. talked about this many times, 11, 23, 8, and 32. You're trading one of those four players. It's going to sting if it happens. Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: And you're right. The level, it's a different level. It's the top level.
2: You're right. It's going to sting and it's going to be emotional and it may be necessary, but dad, we'll see what happens uh, by the time we get to April
1: 14th. I'll be honest, DB. I don't think it's necessary. I think it's a question of, is the, is the return something that can really get the Kings organization excited? Not even excited enough. That's the wrong phrase. Can, can the return, can a return be presented to them? that makes them feel comfortable enough in order to defend that trade, right? Because they're going to come under fire for it. And can they look the player in the eye and say, hey, th- we're doing the right thing for you. We're giving you an opportunity to win here towards the end of your contract and to take another deep run at it, something that you probably won't get here in Los Angeles. And so can you can you look the, the man in the eye and can you tell him that and pay respect to what he's done? Um, because you don't want to create a sour taste in the guy's mouth, right? You when when he retires in a couple of years, whenever that is, whether it's one year, or five years, when he retires, you want to bring him back, and you want him to be excited about coming into Los Angeles and and standing at Center Ice when his number's retired, and so on.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting, John, because it's funny because you're going to have to have a conversation as if he had some no trade protection, which he doesn't have. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind of conversation. Normally. Like, you know, to Foley Pearson, they didn't trade him, right? Mm-hmm. Call Clifford, whatever, right? This player, he doesn't have that protection that you would think he would have, being the status that he is, but he doesn't. They could literally trade him anywhere, but it's you're going to have to have that conversation. Do you want to go here? Mm-hmm. Even though he doesn't have that protection. It's going to be it's going to be interesting. And I think the other thing, John, that, that we kind of danced around, I don't think they're making outbound calls on this. They would entertain inbound calls, sure, but they're not are actively looking to move them, but if a, you know, if a call comes in, they're have to? They're not hanging up the phone, right? Sure. I and mean, that's not it. So it just. But I agree with you. There are complexities to this player that aren't with any other veteran because he's the status that you mentioned.
1: Mm-hmm. And you're also pushing all your chips to the center of the table with a guy like Cal Peterson, and that's not to say that they don't believe in Cal Peterson because they do, and he's been the heir apparent to Jonathan Quick for many, many years, but you look at the body of work, he still does have a relative a relatively small number of NHL games. And at some point you do just have to rip the bandaid off and you have to go for it. And, you know, you saw St. Louis do that with Bennington and he just received a a contract extension as well with a cup already in hand. So um, it'll be, it'll be interesting. It is the one sort of storyline, I think at this point to follow relative to the trade deadline, because uh, as, as I've said before, I don't see the Kings as buyers and I just don't think they have a lot of significant moves to sell off either. So not that they are looking to move uh, double A, but, you know, that's the type of level. If they were to move him because a team called and really wanted him, like, what are you getting for him? Like, to me, that's not a significant move. Um, so no. there, anything that they do would sort of be tweaks at the margin, if anything. So Agreed. Agreed. we'll find out when we get closer. Uh, DB, this is uh, being recorded on Monday afternoon. We will have more college hockey updates just to round out the show today um, on our next program. This is college tournament time. Uh, David Rennick who was on the program the goaltender uh, he was able to help St. Cloud get by Mikey Anderson's Minnesota Duluth team and so they advanced and uh, Cole Caulfield although not a Kings prospect people do love the name he uh, in overtime helped Wisconsin advance into the uh, final of the Big Ten and so Minnesota who has Brock Faber one of the Kings top defensive prospects if you don't follow along on Twitter he uh he took a tumble into the boards late in the second period in the uh, previous game and he missed the third period and the early word was that he was probably going to miss today's game, which is the semifinal game. The winner of today's game will meet Wisconsin in the final and I tweeted out a couple of hours ago uh, prior to game time that Brock Faber was good to go and so he was uh, penciled in and and is playing tonight in that game. We'll see if Minnesota can, can move on and if they can meet Tony Granato and his Wisconsin team in the Big Ten final and then after these conference tournaments, Dennis, then eventually the field of 16 will be announced for the uh, NC2A playoffs, and we'll have to see how many of the Kings prospects they have. Of course, four prospects in college hockey. Um, how many of them make it into the postseason?
2: Yeah, it's exciting. Postseason college hockey is going to be amazing this year.
1: It's going to be great, Dennis, and mark your calendars because I think it's 2026. That's how far in advance they plan these things. The Frozen Four is which is college hockey's big final, the, the final four, the Frozen Four, is coming to Las Vegas, so it's a number of years away. Uh, but by then, they would potentially, because I think it's 2025, the World Juniors is uh, trying to come to uh, Vegas as well. So we'll keep you up to date on all of that. We'll keep you up to date on the LA Kings. Thank you, of course, to Rick and Nickel for coming in, sharing some Kings memories, and DB. We will be back later this week. I'm going to give you a, a teaser here. We have already lined up Anthony Stewart. Although he never played for the LA Kings, he was a member of the LA Kings for a while, thanks to a Kevin Westgarth trade. Uh, That's somebody we had on the program a couple of months back. So we'll talk with Anthony Stewart later this week, TB, catch up with him and uh, find out what he's up to and hear some great stories about his time in Manchester as well. Looking forward to it, Jay. Let's do it. All right. Have a great week, everybody.